Excellent. Thanks so much. Good morning, Northwest. How are you today? You doing well? Welcome to the second service of three services today. And of course, a special welcome to everybody who is tuning in on the internet, <clears throat> streaming along beside us. If you are streaming along uh, on, the, on the broadcast this morning, please uh, sign in to that little chat box and tell us where you're streaming from. Tell us that you're there. Uh, let us know. We'd love to be connected to you and, and be a part of what you're doing as you're being a part of what we're doing. <clears throat> today, we are uh, launching into a series today called Let My People Think. And this is actually a, a, a title that is a, for our series that we've really ripped from Ravi Zacharias's website himself. He's got uh, he's got a, a, a series that he he just he calls all of his teachings called "Let My People Think." And if many of you may already know, but Ravi Zacharias was scheduled to come to speak here at our church about in about three weeks' time. And that's now cancelled simply because he's had major problems with his throat and his speaking. He's, uh, <clears throat> you can imagine how much he speaks around the world. He's constantly speaking uh, to different universities, uh, to different co uh, uh, conferences, etc., all around the world. So he's had really a lot of problems with his throat. So he won't be coming. But we have decided we're still going to continue with this series called Let My People Think, where we're basically taking a small clip from Ravi Zacharias, and then what we're going to do is take his clip and then try and teach on it. Now that I have tried to do this, I'm now asking myself the question of what was I thinking, right? Because how many of you know Ravi Zacharias? You've, you know of him, you've heard of him? Okay, he's really like our modern day C.S. Lewis. He really is quite a genius fellow. Uh, he's originally from India, uh, grew up in Canada as well, and uh, lives in Georgia in America now. <clears throat> and uh, the guy is quite, quite brilliant. And... Um, so now that I've uh, taken a clip, I've, I've looked at so many parts of videos of, that he's got, and as I was looking at them, I would get depressed at the end of it, because then I realized, what am I doing? This guy is such a deep thinker. I cannot portray or convey what he has really just said in this. So what we're going to do is just run an entire video of Ravi Zacharias this morning, and I'm just going to leave and go home right now. Is that okay? No, I'm kidding. What we will do is we will definitely take a, a video clip. I found a video clip of something that really... It's not just in my wheelhouse, but I believe really uh, 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 explains what I believe helps us to understand what is wrong in our world today. Because there was a question that he was asked about our culture, and he said, our Western culture is dying, and he gives explanation for that. Um, and he gives the reason of why our Western culture is dying. And this is going to be the clip that we're about to run. It's about six minutes long. Once it's finished, then I will continue on with what um, uh, the word is this morning. Are we ready? Steady? Thank you. We are seeing. The other day, you mentioned fatherhood. Uh, tell me, why do you think uh, fatherhood or a recovery of fatherhood is so important for today? I think it's critical, both existentially and uh, nationally. When you take a look at what's happening in the inner cities, let's say I can speak now of North America, what's happening in the inner cities? Crime. You can't walk down the street in our inner cities without high risk today. And a real issue in the inner city home is the absence of the father. I have a, a good friend who's an African-American man who is a limo driver and he picks us up from the airport often. He'll talk to me. 
he'll say, you know, I look at what's happening to our boys in the inner city. And he'll say, they have no dads at home. And he's talking about his own daughter. He says, my own daughter. He says, there's no father for her boys. He said, and she keeps calling me. And I keep saying, how long are you going to keep calling me? And he says, the crisis of no fathers means there is no way to show strength with respect and dignity. There's no way for a young man to know how to treat a lady. There's no way for a young man to know what love really means without compromise. And the absence of a dad in our time is critical. But you take a great, great names like Freud, Marx. These men were men really without fathers as examples. Look at the worldviews they developed in the process. And so I say if a, if a city has young people without fathers, think of a world without a heavenly father. So the analogy is very real. I believe young men desperately need to see what it means to have a dad and to see a dad live with strength, courtesy, and dignity. We don't have that and we are losing this example. And I think it's a crisis. Uh, you gave a testimony the other day that you tried to commit suicide when you were 17. Um, can you describe your relationship with your earthly father at that time? You've asked a very good question, and it's a question that strikes right into my heart. I come from a family of five kids. My older brother went into computer programming, worked for IBM, became a systems engineer. Then my two sisters, they were educated, my younger brother a surgeon. For some reason, my dad had it in for me. I've never figured it out. All four of them have agreed. Say, so we don't know what it was that the dad had against you. When I was born in India, my dad was in England. I didn't see him till I was nearly a year old, something like that. I don't know what it had to do with it. My older brother was just like my father. My dad saw me as a kind of a weakling, and maybe therefore, and I was not a good performer, so he was not completely to blame. I took beatings. I took vicious beatings. I've said in my book, Walking from East to West, at one point, if my mother hadn't intervened, he could have done permanent damage. I mean, I took a whipping like you don't, you don't want to describe. And uh, it just drove me towards total despair. You know, I wasn't going to please my dad. What's the point of it all? And I was on a bed of suicide when I was 17, and God changed my life. Somebody brought a Bible and my conversion through the power of Jesus Christ and him being my savior transformed everything. Ultimately, it brought my dad to the Lord because he couldn't believe the change he'd seen in my life. So the story doesn't end badly. In fact, before he died, before he went to the hospital for elective surgery, he was only 67. All my brothers and sisters lived in Toronto, 10, 15 minutes away. I lived in Niagara Falls, Ontario, 75 miles away. He asked for me to come and take him to the hospital. He had a premonition this wasn't going to go well. And what he did there was ask for forgiveness as I took him. It was an amazing thing within the Indian culture. So I didn't have a good relationship with my father. Uh, that I think hurt me a lot. And uh, some of it was my own fault. Uh, I wasn't doing well. The other of it was we lived in a culture where shame was a thing that you, you, you raised your children with. So he thought he would inflict shame and pain on me to turn the right to the right way. It didn't happen. But, you know, mending that fence with my dad before he passed away is one of the greatest thrills of my life that I spoke at my dad's funeral as well. And to be able to know that he, whatever he did, he did out of an honest mistake 
and uh, he really thought he was helping me when all along he was really wounding me even more. In that culture, nobody talks about parenting. Nobody talks about fatherhood or motherhood. We go sort of intuitively. Mothers have done a great job in that culture. I'm not sure about the dads. And uh, so I came from a wounded relationship that way. And do you, uh, do you give credit then to you being introduced to Christ first that started to heal that relationship? Uh, or? I, God in his sovereignty, yeah. I would say I had nothing to do with it. But the fact that the God changed my heart. When I got my first doctorate in uh, Kentucky, my dad came for it. I think he was in a state of shock. You know, he thought, I was, he thought my life was going to end up in jail. And when he arrived, when he came there and he sat in the front row, I can still see him sitting on my left. And uh, he, was, he was just in a state of shock that I was being given this doctorate. And he went and bought the hood for me, and it was his own way of saying, I'm proud of you, you know. And uh, that began the journey, and when he gave his life to Christ, he became a very different man, became a part of the Gideons, you know, distributing Bibles, became an elder in his church. You would never recognize my, my wife, Margie, said to me when he was literally in the coffin, and above his coffin was a picture of him from years gone by, several pictures. Margie said to me, I can look at his photographs and tell you when he came to know the Lord. usually the presence or the absence of the Father. It really is something that I think that I want us to understand. And, and even though we're going into this month about understanding, you know, we're using this whole series called Let My People Think, he's basically pointed out something that truly is the foundation to the way people think. <clears throat> it's you, what you come from and especially how you process your relationship with your Father that dictates the way that you actually look at life. The father problem is the root of all of our issues in our culture, is essentially what Ravi is saying. I want you to turn to the person beside you, and I want you to say the number 294. Turn to the person beside you and say 294. Do you know what that is? That's the number of mass shootings that have happened this year in this country up to the end of September. A mass shooting is considered as anything of a minimum amount of four people who have been shot and or killed by someone with a gun. That's a lot, isn't it? <clears throat> it doesn't take into the account of single shootings, but it's mass shootings. 46 of those shootings of four or more have happened in schools this year. Now, one of the things that I find is, as soon as something like that happens, we'll find our country's leaders starting to say that we need to get more laws in place. But what I have found is this, that there is no law of the land that can be properly adhered to if there's no law of the heart. Because it's only a law of the heart that will make the difference to a person's choices. There's no law on the outside that can legislate what a person should do. It's only a law of the heart that will make any difference, which is why we can say this from Jeremiah 17, 9. It says, the heart is deceitful. What does that say? Above all else. Above all else, the heart is deceitful. 
and desperately sick. Who can understand it? In order to understand the problem of what our problem is in our culture, we have to understand the issue of the heart. And it's not just as simple as just the choices that we are making, but it is the relationships that we have had with our parents, especially, as Ravi is saying, with our fathers. Now, we can't say that there is no God. People cannot say there is no God and then ask, where the hell was he when hell was happening in a, in a mass shooting? Where is God? But you don't believe in him. Or what about this? I know of people who say that they believe in God, but they don't actually follow to seek his ways. You can say he or believe he exists, but do nothing in order to try and figure out what should I do? What does he require of me? And so our problem is this, that we have this issue in our culture where our culture is dying without a doubt, but we don't know what we're meant to do about it. In fact, there's been many solutions that have put forward to try and fix this whole particular thing. But maybe we should be asking the question of what is so important about trying to understand the problem? Well, for us as Christians, it's this. In Proverbs 11, it says, he who wins souls is wise. That means that I don't want us to become such intellectual and, 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 and brilliant Christians who know how to, how to properly process a person's question and come up with such genius answers in order to uh, uh, combat what they say or to defend what we believe. No, it's more than that. We actually have to become wise in what we do. We have to know that what is underneath any argument or question that a person has, it's a foundation that God has already laid for us. You see, knowledge is simply, sorry, wisdom is simply the proper use of knowledge. Wisdom is just the proper use of knowledge. And so our job as Christians is that we are not only to become smart and become uh, 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 all understanding with the knowledge that God has given us, but we have to convert this into wisdom that becomes useful information for people to use in life. It leads me to this place that if we know what the problem is, then we now have to ask the, ourselves the question of, then what is the answer to this? Well, before we can actually figure out what the answer is, I believe we have to find out what the pattern is. What is it that God has set in place? Because God has set a pattern in place of how we were designed, and we cannot supersede that. We can't change that. And so I want to look at Luke chapter 15, verses 11 to 20. And it's the story of the prodigal son that, that many of us have probably read or heard uh, many times. But there are four things in this that Ravi uh, has even written a book about that, I can't remember the title of the book, um, but he puts forth these four things that we must answer, questions that we must know how to answer in order to really understand what life is about. We're going to read from chapter 11 of Luke 15. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. 
He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I'll set out, and I'm going to go back to my father, and I'm going to say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. Everything is rooted in the Father, as far as I understand. There are 46 parables that Jesus talks about in the New Testament, that is, that, 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 uh, in, the, in the Gospels, Mark, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. <clears throat> Who are they? I can't remember. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. 46 parables. Half of them talks about a father. Most of the time that when Jesus was talking, he always referred to his dad, to his father. There are four things that Rabbi talks about that he believes are questions that we must answer. Every human is looking to answer these questions, and it's this. What is the origin of life? What is the meaning of life? What is the morality of our life? And what is the destiny of our life? These are the four questions that everyone is constantly asking, whether we think we ask them or whether we decide that we don't care about it, at some point, you're going to demand that there is a right and a wrong answer to all of these questions. There's only one of these questions that we cannot change. All the other ones, we can change how we answer. The first one is the only question that we can come up with answers to, but we cannot. We can come up with different answers, but we can't actually change our origin. The origin has already happened. It's, it's been set in stone. It's already happened uh, thousands, if not millions of years ago, and we can't change that. But we get to decide what the question, sorry, what our answer is to the question of our meaning, our morality, and our destiny, and people do this all the time. Let's look at the first one. The four things that, go, that every good father defines for his son is this. The first one is his origin. The son said this, Father, give me my share of the estate. You'll notice this that everything that he had and everything that he wanted to do had to be empowered by what he came from, right? I'm amazed at how many times, uh, how much money is actually invested to try and figure out where we all come from. The millions, if not billions of dollars that have now been spent on, you know, the large uh, cauldron collider where they've got this hadron cauldron, whatever it is, a big circle, right? And it's about, uh, it's about 30 kilometers long. And they're trying to smash these atoms together to try and get the small, tiny thing that's behind the atom so we can all discover where do we come from. The amazing thing is how we come up with theories to be able to answer the problem of the last theory that we came up with that didn't actually completely answer everything that we had asked about, right? So we come up with, where did we all come from? Well, we've all come from a big bang. Wonderful. Where did the big bang come from? Ah, give me a minute. I think there was a big bang before that. Great. Where did that come from? Give me a minute. 
I think there was actually other universes, right? There was other universes and they just kind of existed and we're just one of a billion universes. Wonderful, where did they come from? No one has an answer for these things and yet we are looking for the answers of these things but often they don't really necessarily accept the insanity of infinite regression of evolution. You can't have that. Something has to come from something. Something can't come from nothing. And so therefore, for something to have always existed is basically to say that there must be a God. Even if you don't decide to attribute it to a being, something has to be infinitely in existence. That's essentially saying there's a God. And yet we will always ask the question of where we come from, but society will not allow ourselves to be able to ask the question of it came from God. I believe that it's important even as us as humans that we should look into our ancestry of where we came from. Even in the medical world, we look into our ancestry and under, to understand the genes that make up our bodies so we can understand the makeup of our bodies. But oftentimes when you understand what you came from, you can start to understand who you are. Why? Because that's the way God has designed things. To answer the question of our origin is not just something that even Christians should just say, well, we come from God, that's it, and then we walk away. No, it's our job to understand that, to look into it. Science is wonderful. I love it. I love looking into science because it helps me to understand the way that God has designed things because God has set patterns in place that we don't get to violate, we don't get to change. The second thing that the, the son Show, this story of the sun shows us, is our meaning. In verse 17, it says this. When the son came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here am I starving. Here am I starving to death. This is not a, a, a phrase about just hunger. This isn't just a phrase about having food or not having food. It's literally about what's the point of having food? What is the point of just eating? People don't just eat just to eat. They eat because it's an experience. It's an emotion. It's a joy. It's something that gives you a feeling of life. There has to be a meaning to why our life exists. And philosophers have tried to answer this question so much to the point where they've swung from one side of the, of, of, of the realm to the other side of the realm, whereas, where some philosophers are saying it's only about having pleasure. So whatever pleases you is what you should do, regardless of what anybody else thinks. It should be just about what, did, what pleases you. And so people have done things selfishly and yet hurt, hurt other people. Or maybe you'll swing to the other side where it says it's about trying to find yourself and, and be devoid of everything that is in your life and to not be controlled by any pleasures whatsoever, but to draw yourself away from pleasures. And people are literally looking for meaning in life. For me, my meaning comes from what God has put in place and that is he has designed us to enjoy life. But enjoying life, I've discovered, only is found by knowing and understanding who God is. We've even put this into our constitution where we've asked the question of what is it that we're here for? What is it that we're doing? And we've, asked, we've answered it by saying that we are here for the, for the purpose of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We even have it in our constitution to say that that is why we exist. It's not just for mere existence or propagation of having children, but it's so that we can all individually have a life and liberty and pursue this happiness. 
It's amazing how much our happiness we, dis- we try and pursue in different places in life, but we don't ever accept the fact that maybe it's in the presence of God. We think maybe God is so far off and He really doesn't care about us. Let me tell you, God is an ever-present Father in our lives. He wants to have that relationship with us. I know it simply by when I come home and I open up the door and my kids scream and then come running at me. They are pre-designed to want to be with the Father, right? They're pre-designed to want to be with their dad. Mothers, you're important too, but today we're just talking about fathers, okay? So... Let's go to the next one, <laughs> morality. I will set out and go back to my father, he said, and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. The definition of his morality came from something outside of himself, from his father and from heaven. There was a pattern that was already set in place that he measured himself against. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. I love this, that uh, I was watching a video where Ravi Zacharias was asked, this young guy at a university said, listen, you've told us all about this God stuff and your, your Christianity, but really at the end of the day, what's the big deal that your morality has to be the only way? Why is it I have to subscribe to your morality? Why can't we just have, what's what's the problem with moral relativity? What's right for me is what's right for me. What's right for you is what's right for you. What are you so scared of? Was what he asked. So Ravi got up to the microphone. He said, do you lock your door at night? And everybody laughed. And he said, you're saying that I'm scared of moral relativism. You're scared of moral relativism because you don't know what other people believe out there. They might believe that your life is not worth it and your life is not valuable and they're willing to break in your house, steal your stuff and shoot you and kill you. That's moral relativism. That means that their right is different from your right. Their wrong is different from your wrong. That's what you're scared of. His point is this, that we have to have a common morality but that common morality can't come from me and it can't come from you. It's got to come from a source. And that source is usually from someone who is greater than ourselves. That's God. And so here we are with our, with our morality asking, how do we get a morality? Where does it come from? Well, something that I find really fascinating <clears throat> is that we have tried to figure out what is right or wrong by ourselves. And if you read the, the, the story of Adam and Eve, when, when Adam and Eve were, uh, uh, when, when, they, when God said, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good or evil, it's not simply because he wanted to, them to be dumb or stupid, but it's simply this, he didn't want them to choose what was right or wrong for themselves. He'd already set the pattern in place of what was right or wrong, and he knew that worked. If someone else comes up with a different version of what's right and wrong and it violates the way that God has decided things are meant to be, it can't work out to be better. And so it takes us to this place where, uh, to our final point of destiny, where the son says this, so he got up and he went to his father. He realized this, that it was better to be a servant in the house where there was peace than to be the king in a house where there is confusion. 
And oftentimes what we find is we're in control of our own life and we are king and queen and masters of our own destinies, but we don't have that peace and joy that we're looking for. People don't have it. I speak to people all the time and I discover that all the time. And let me tell you, it's better that you were the least in God's house than you were the king in your own house. I've uh, <coughs> brought up a bunch of books, so it makes me look intelligent. I'm kidding. Um, <clears throat> this book here I recently uh, bought and read, and it's just, it just recently came out. It's one of the most fascinating books I've read. It was released by Harvard, and it's called The Triumphs of Experience, and it's written by George E. Valent. And what he says is, uh, he's, he's talking about this study called the Harvard Grant Study that was started with about <clears throat> roughly about 300 men from Harvard. And what they did is they chose men from different backgrounds, from poorer backgrounds, like scholarships to go to Harvard, all the way up to really rich people, <clears throat> rich um, men who had, you know, 18 years old, had just come to Harvard. And they decided to do a study on them to see, you know, the things that they chose in life and how they would be happy and, and how well they would succeed in life. And they were able to continue this study for 75 years. Let me tell you, that is the longest running study that we know of for 75 years. And I find it fascinating because what they discovered was the results were something that they didn't expect to get. Here's one of the, the, one of the most interesting quotes that I got from this book, and it's this. He says this, we found that contentment in the man's late 70s was not even suggestively associated with paternal social class or even the man's own income. What it was significantly associated with was warmth of childhood environment, and it was very significantly associated with a man's closeness to his father. This cost millions of dollars to study, to come up with something that was already a pattern in the Word of God. How many years we have spent in our intellectualism to discover what works and what doesn't work, and it all goes back to the same thing that God has already told us, that our heart is affected 100% by our relationship with our fathers. Now, you might have an unresolved relationship with your father. What do you do with that? There are answers to this. There are solutions to this. And it comes down to this. We have to recognize that our earthly fathers are only the way that God has chosen to show himself through. But once we become a man, even though it might help us to understand that we might come from dysfunction, we have to know this. The blame might not lie with you for your own dysfunction, but the responsibility lies with you in order to do something about it. Why? Because you're now a father and a mother to the children that are coming thereafter. So therefore, we have to find out from God, what is the pattern? What have you told us to do? How should we resolve this? How should we handle this? Years ago, I was at a dinner party with my wife and, um, here in town, and uh, <clears throat> It was all very influential and, and, and very successful people. And so I was sitting down at a table beside a person, uh, this guy, I think he was like in his late 70s, possibly 80s. And, and uh, so 
Uh, what I find funny is when, whenever, whenever I sit or speak with someone, uh, it's, it's amazing how free people feel to either mimic my accent or to talk about an opinion about my country, right? It's just the way I am. It's like I'm from Disneyland. I'm, I'm everybody's friend. So, um, and so um, he goes, so, uh, so where are you from? You're from Scotland. Oh, that's absolutely wonderful. Just that's just super lovely. This is my opinion about your country. Oh, lovely. Thanks very much. That's, that's super. Right, so, and then he goes, um, so what is it that dragged you all the way over here to leave Bonnie, Scotland? And I said, actually, I work for a church here. And he goes, oh, interesting, fascinating. And I said, do you go to church yourself? He goes, oh, I haven't done, been down that road much. I don't, I'm not really into that type of stuff anymore. You know what I'm saying? Like he had superseded that. And so he said, um, he had said, uh, he said, he said, and so what is it you do at your church? So I described what I do. And, and one of the things that I'd said was, um, I do a lot of counseling with people to, just to help them to find the tools for life, to be able to find, you know, life and life to the full, as Jesus told us in John 10, 10. And he goes, uh, he goes, oh, tell me, what is the most fascinating thing that you have found about in, in counseling? I said, it's this, that it takes a boy to teach a, to, it takes a man to teach a boy how to become a man. And he goes, hmm, that's fascinating. Tell me more. So I told him more. I was telling him stories of what I've discovered that people get frozen in time regardless of what age they become. And whatever age they were at with their father, where there was a dysfunction and a disconnect with their dad, they're now frozen at that age. Eight years old, 10 years old, 12 years old. They're frozen there. And it's not until they can properly process those emotions and have a proper relationship with another man, like a father, where they can now take themselves past those emotions and become whole again. And so he said, it reminds me a lot about my dad. I have rarely slept a night through since I was a child. And I said, what was your dad like? And he said, he was a very violent man. And it got worse after he came back from Vietnam. And I remember when he used to beat the living S-H-I-T out of me. And I hated him. I wanted him to die. I can always remember. I have nightmares still to this day. This guy's nearly 80. And I said, have you ever forgiven your dad? And so we talked about forgiveness and he said, well, I've been a lot in counseling and we've talked you know, with counselors about this type of thing, but I still, I still have this problem. And I said, you're going to have to A, forgive your dad, and then B, replace your dad. Because the fact is, every one of us have to leapfrog over our fathers to become sons and daughters of the God Most High. And he actually started tearing up and crying because he was remembering what it was like to be that young boy being beaten up by his father. And his wife was across the table and she was kind of shifting in her seat, getting a little uncomfortable. Tom, I think we can move on from this topic right now. It's because he was becoming very lubricated with more whiskey. He was telling me more stuff. Well, I found out it's the best counseling method in the world. Have more, there we are. <laughs> turns out, I didn't know this, but turns out he was a very well-known prosecutor here in Orlando. He's now retired. And the reason why his wife wasn't comfortable was because she was a sitting judge in Orlando. And of course, you don't want this type of stuff to come out of, we're dysfunctional, we don't want people to know. Listen, this is the underlying issue of what undermines everything that we do. 
It, it undermines this because we're coming up with these answers of what's the problem with all these 294 shootings, mass shootings in this country? Why is this happening? I know what we need. We need more laws. No, we don't. We need the, we need the change of our hearts that we need the law of our Father in our heart to change our hearts so that we can live out the way that God has designed us to be. You think about it, we need zero laws. We need a change of heart. And if we had a change of heart, we would be able to live in obedience to the Father. I fear a person who does not have obedience to the Father. Why? Because God opposes that person. It's not because I'm scared of that person but it's because I'm scared to be involved with that person if they're disobedient against God because God is against him. So if I go make friends and buddies with people who are disobedient against God, then I'm standing beside the person that God is against. It sounds a very harsh thing to say, but we have to understand that God can't afford for unrighteousness or sin or death to be in his kingdom. He can't let that in, which is why we're not with him right now which is why we're here right now going through a life and a process of repentance in order to find that relationship with God. One of the things that I loved last week is uh, many of you were here for baptisms last week and I loved what uh, Jack was saying about his nephew when he was you know, baptizing his nephew. And his nephew had said, I wanna be tested by God like Job. Now, all of us went, are you sure? That's a pretty scary Bible book right there. And Jack figured out later on that what he was asking was this, I want to know what God thinks about me. I want to know what he wants of me. I want to know that I'm able to live up to the standards that he has asked of me so that I might be able to please him. It's in the heart of a child. It's in the heart of every man and woman that exists on earth. So the next thing is this, if we know what the problem is and we now understand the pattern, what is the answer? Can I tell you what the answer is? You, you're the answer that God has given for this world. If you have found the father and you still have dysfunction and, and issues that you're unresolved with concerning your father, then get it resolved. Go into, go into counseling. Get, find someone who can help you through this process to get things from your past resolved and then become the answer for other people. Ravi said this. Ravi Zacharias says that behind every question, there is a questioner. Answer the person. Let's not become so intellectual and so smart that we know how to answer every question there is about God. What I find is I'm not very good at that anyway. But I can speak to the person and love the person because what I find is everything that they say has always come from some experience that has led them up to whatever they say or whatever they're asking. You follow me so far? And so the more that we look for not only just the way that God designed things and the more that we look into trying to capture what that is, the more we start to measure everybody else by the way that God designed things and then we can see where they have a disconnect. I don't want to give everybody the answer. I do want to show them the Father. I don't want to become the fixer. I want to be the presence of the Father because it says that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. If he was willing to give his first son, what makes you think he's not willing to give you to the world, right? If you're a son or daughter in the kingdom of God, he is giving the world you. Let us become the answer. Let us become 
the answer. <clears throat> Excuse me. Years ago when uh, when I was about 16, 15 or 16 years old, <clears throat> excuse me, my father had a, a good-sized church in, in, um, in Dundee in Scotland. And so he had a big hall like this, and it was like the recreational hall, and there was like windows all the way along the top. <clears throat> excuse me. And uh, 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 there was like a, a few weeks in a row where someone kept breaking in through the window and then jumping into the church and then trying to get into the office and steal money. And they always seemed to raid the, the, the candy bar, right? There was, like a, there was like a coffee and then there was all these candies. And I'm like, whoa, you could just see them. There's like covered, you know, like covered in chocolate with the bags of chocolate running down the road, right? With, with, with cash in their pocket. But candy and cash seemed to be the thing that they were into. And part of me at 15 and 16 years old was, I was a little incensed, you know, I wanted to see some justice. How dare they steal something from my, my dad's church, from the father's house? And, and so this sense of injustice rose up within me. So I got this genius idea that what I was going to do, I was going to camp out overnight in the church to try and see if I could catch the guy coming the next night, right? So I convinced my friend, hey, do you want to stay? We'll sleep out overnight and we'll try and catch this guy red-handed. And we're like, yeah, let's do it. So we came up with this genius idea that you sleep for an hour and I'll stay awake, right? And then I'll tap you awake, you stay awake, and then I'll go to a nap for an hour. And then we'll do that every hour until the morning comes, right? Deal, high five, right? Did that the entire night and he didn't turn up. And I was so disappointed because I wanted to fix this and I wanted to, to change this issue and this problem that was happening in the world. And it wasn't until years later that I felt like God reminded me of what I had done. And I knew that he was showing me was this. He said, you were more interested to correct the problem than you were to love the person. It would be better if you got out on the streets and walked the same streets because you know that it's probably one of these young guys of one of those gangs that walk up and down the main street of your city. But you're more interested to correct the problem and to protect your environment and kick everybody out of the things that you want to keep pure and sacred rather than going out into the world and standing with these people where they're in broad daylight and they're ready and willing and ready to receive the Father. The great thing about this story is it says that when the Father saw the Son coming, the Father got up and he ran to him. In a story about a Middle Eastern father, the pride of the family is the, one of the most important things, and the name of the family is something you protect. And Ravi was saying this. He said, you'll not see a Middle Eastern father run out to his son. That goes against all convention of pride. When Jesus was telling the story of the father running to the son, you knew that he loved the son. It's our job, I believe, to not only be healed from our pasts, but it's our job to become the answer for people. Do we, does anybody here want to stop shootings in our school? Is there anyone who wants to stop our children being slaughtered by each other? I'm the answer. There was a brilliant, uh, there was a brilliant man, I can't remember his name, where there was an article in the newspaper where they had said, what is wrong with this world? This is about 100 years ago. And the guy wrote in and he said, Dear sir, in answer to your article, I am. Our hearts are the problem. We must find them resolved. And then we must go out and tell other people about the Father. 
Let's end this morning and, and pray together as we end this morning. Let's stand. <clears throat> Father, we are, before we go into any more understanding of your word, before we go into understanding the way the world operates or what we're meant to do in this life, we want to acknowledge first and foremost that there is something that has been set in place and you have already put it in play. And it's the way that life works. It's the way that we must understand the way you operate. And we know, Father, there is disconnects even in our own hearts with our own fathers. God, we pray that you would do something inside of us to become resolved so we can become disconnected to childhood emotions and become the men and women that we're meant to be so that we can be the answer to the world. Father, I can be offended by no one when I know what my father thinks about me. I'm not upset by what other people do to me or against me when I know my father is proud of me. I pray, Father, that you would show your pleasure you would show your joy, your acceptance, and your value in each one of our hearts this morning so that we can become everything that you've called us to be. We ask this in your precious Son's name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. May God bless you. Have a great day.